Hello everyone, it's February 11th, 2020. So Boeing is having a bad year or two and Starliner isn't making it any better. We got the latest news on its latest problem. Also, Astro comes out of hiding and we're talking to Jason Bott of the 100 year Starship. What's that? Let's find out and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 247 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. We got a big show coming up, but uh, we had some astronauts come back. They just touched down, I think, yesterday, so that was good. I mean, and everything went well. Oh, yeah. I didn't expect otherwise. Jessica Meir looked so pumped coming out of the capsule. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I saw her um, back in Houston hugging one of her... Or maybe it was back in Star City, but she was hugging one of her relatives, I think, who had come to see her. And the look on her face was just so happy. It made me so happy. I don't want to turn this into a Ben discussion, but uh, I had my first migraine last night and uh, I had uh, an aura. You guys know how migraines give you visual mm -hmm. auras. Um, and it turns out that my migraine auras apparently look like bismuth crystals. What? Like, like it, it was uh, a rectangle across my vision that was really slim and it had almost like a, um, a herringbone pattern that hmm. like changed colors. It really, it really looked like bismuth crystals. That's kind of cool. I mean, I'm not going to say it's worth it because I know that my are horrible, but <laughs> no, not worth it. <laughs> uh, well, actually, I, I could climb in there a little bit too, Ben. Um, I think the term for the aura itself is scintillating scotoma, mm. and I get those, but with no associated uh, migraine. I, I describe it just like floaters that just won't go away, and they're just these little s slices through my field of vision. I just have to wait like 20 minutes before you know looking at a screen or reading. It's just kind of annoying, but mercifully it doesn't have that migraine. Okay, so let's talk about good things now. So I guess in the ongoing saga of Boeing drops the ball, as I like to call it, um, uh, there were further complications, or I guess there were some further issues, you could say, with Starliner. And now, so in retrospect, uh, do you think that the problem with, you know, that whole timing issue, that maybe that was a good thing? That actually was, oh, you know, worked out well, for the best, yeah, we'll, if you think we'll, about we'll it? Yeah, we'll talk about that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, so the big thing is that um, there was a... Uh, phone conference this week, um, basically where ASAP, the Aerospace Safety Advisory Panel, kind of published some of their preliminary findings. And, and they, like you said, they included some new things that we hadn't heard about. And NASA and Boeing basically had to, to panic to, <laughs> to get their responses together. Um, but first, I wanted to say um, a big thank you to Delta V in the chat. Um, during the phone conference, I wasn't able to be there for all of it. I uh, caught like the second half of it, but the, um, the discord was a buzz during the, during the conference and the Delta V, uh, very kindly transcribed a bunch of notes, uh, afterwards and posted them in discord. And it, that was very helpful. And it was, I, I had missed some things, even when I was paying attention, I was working. And so I, I had missed some things. And so it was really nice to have a good summary. Well, you know, th thanks to everybody in the chat for uh, for going through this with us uh, or, you know, talking, talking with and amongst themselves. Anyway, so um, basically uh, ASAP identified three uh, three issues that happened during uh, the orbital test flight. First was the MET issue, which we which we talked about. That was the, the mission timer issue that we speculated a whole lot about. 
Um, so we have an answer to what happened. Basically, the way that the vehicle was designed was that the capsule would pull time from the launch vehicle, but it would do so during the terminal count, um, which would allow it to synchronize its mission lapse timer. Well, uh, they implemented the time pull mechanism where they could actually go and, and talk to the other computer and pull a time, but they absolutely did not implement the conditional, which was wait until terminal count before you pull it. So the, um, the capsule pulled an incorrect time from the vehicle before terminal count started. And, and that's why the, the, the timer was wrong. So they noticed that the timer was wrong just before the, the burn that they ended up missing was supposed to happen. So that, that review ended up finding another issue, which I'll talk about in a sec. Trying to solve the MET issue um, basically required just telling the vehicle to update its timer. However, they couldn't do it right away, even though they noticed it before the burn was supposed to start. Um, they actually had a communications issue that came up. And we talked about this a little bit, but we didn't really know what was going on. So they confirmed that Starliner was using Tdris, and then they went on to indicate that some geographic locations around, you know, low Earth orbit have what they called a high noise floor, um, just due to, you know, human act like human terrestrial activity. So just what's on the ground can result in a higher uh, noise floor on those radio frequencies, which makes sense. Um, they speculate that it's, it's likely cell phone towers are, are contributing most of this noise. However, ISS doesn't care, right? ISS can always talk to Tdris as long as there's a Tdris uh, in view and ready to take their communications. ISS sometimes has got communications gaps uh, on the TGIS network, but I don't believe it's due to these high noise floor geographical locations. But while ISS might not care, Starliner really cared. Um, and when they were in those geographic locations, they could not communicate with TGIS, which delayed fixing the MET problem the mission elapsed timer problem. So when it was reporting, it was originally reported that Starliner was in a gap, essentially, between Tdris coverage. Is that not true? And that rather That's than it being a true. gap, yeah, it was just yeah. this mm. noise. Huh. I, I think that I think that calling it a gap is not totally dishonest because I mean, it, it was a it was a little gap. It just wasn't that it couldn't see you know it wasn't like you know tdrises were too close to the to the horizon it was it was that they had this fuzzy area so i don't know if this was understood to be a problem beforehand but it sounds like it probably wasn't uh foreseen um so preliminary reports uh indicate that they believe that this is not a software issue and they also are going to continue doing hardware testing and they believe that there wasn't a hardware failure it sounds like maybe the hardware um design was at fault so who knows if they're going to accept this in the in the final vehicle or not um okay so the communications issue um delayed fixing the met issue but the met issue actually um like i said it, it resulted in a you know mid-mission code review where they went okay let's go check all of our other conditionals and make sure that we actually have the proper rules implemented and when they did that, they found another issue that they were able to fix in time that it didn't actually cause any, uh, you know, perturbations to the mission. But it would have been pretty, pretty crappy. And it, I, I want to emphasize here that uh, this third issue 
would not have been found if the MET issue had not occurred and triggered that review, which is what you are alluding to, David. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, So I wouldn't call, I wouldn't call any of this a mixed blessing. I think if you've got, (laughs) if you've got design issues, it's really hard to spin that as a mixed blessing. Just like, uh, you know, Apollo 13, you wouldn't go, oh, well, it was a mixed blessing that they use different uh, CO2 scrubbers because it taught us to, you know, think on our feet. And it's like, no, 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 no. Mm-hmm. This was, you know, something that we never foresaw, but it was uh, a mode of design that we just um, hadn't learned yet. Okay, so here's the problem. During the mission, the crew module is in charge of this, this system, right? It, it's essentially... Um, Starliner is essentially two spacecraft coupled together. There's the crew module and the service module. And so during the mission, the crew module's in charge and the crew module's computer does all of the work essentially. So when the crew module wants to point in a particular direction or translate in a particular direction, it sends thruster commands to the service module, which has, um, they, they both have thrusters on board, but it needs to be able to command the service module thrusters. So after separation, um, right before reentry, the service module basically becomes its own spacecraft. And so it has to be able to command its own thrusters. So the way this works is um, they actually have what's called a lookup table. I think most people will either be familiar with a lookup table or be able to guess what it means. But basically, they need two different lookup tables. One that uh, maps thrusters in the not docked configuration, but the pre-separation condition, and then a separate uh, lookup table that maps thrusters in the separated condition. Well, the service module didn't have its own lookup table. It just used the exact same lookup table that the crew module did, which is insane. Look, I'm, I'm going to be really harsh here. This is an unforgivable issue. They, they simply did not load the right data into the service module. So when they realized that this was a problem, they were able to update this lookup table right before reentry or before separation and reentry happened. But here's, <laughs> I, I'm just, I can't believe that this has happened. Mm-hmm. So what would have happened is with the wrong lookup table, um, it wouldn't have caused the service module to fly backwards or anything, um, but it would have resulted in uneven uh, thruster firings, which would have resulted in the uh, service module not separating properly. You have to do, a collision avoidance maneuver. And this is true for, you know, pretty much every uh, vehicle that re-enter, that separates this close to re-entries. You have to get away from things that you've jettisoned. In Kerbal Space Program, things are a little simple. All you have to do is just point in the right direction and the other the other module or whatever you're detaching will, will pretty much just fly away from you and not come back. Um, but in real life, you, you have a very real... Uh, chance of contact between separated uh, separated vehicles or separated modules or whatever. Um, and so in this case, they they didn't go and do um, actual simulations in the incorrect configuration. But you know, experts looked at it and they said it, there's a pretty likely chance that, that the service module would have recontacted the crew module, which would have been bad in two different ways. First off, it would have imparted a rotation to the crew module. Perhaps in a way that 
the crew module would not have been able to recover from, which means it might have ended up wobbling or actually, you know, full on end over end tumbling through the atmosphere. And it also, if it contacted the the heat shield, which is where it would have, you know, bumped it, uh, it potentially could have damaged the heat shield. Both of those things could have resulted in uh, probable, well, let's say possible. I don't think that they identified the likelihood, but the possible loss of the of the crew module on reentry. Now, the service module uh, disposal issue, this this thruster map, was originally not reported, which I think is is pretty crappy. The review board um, said, well, you know, we we knew that this happened. I, actually, I think it was Boeing was saying this. You know, we, we realized that this happened. We, we fixed the problem. We just we didn't want to publicize it because, um, you know, you you wouldn't have wanted us to speculate. And we just wanted to get everything. We wanted to do the review and have the real answer before we brought it to the public, which I, I think is just I, I understand the intention, um, but it really sounds like a mealy mouth excuse. I think if you're having to do software updates on the fly to correct an issue that you only found during the mission, uh, mm-hmm. there's very little excuse for saying, oh, well, we didn't want to speculate. No, you don't. You didn't have to speculate. You just had to say, hey, we fixed a problem. You know, you can eat, forget it. Like you can even spin it if you want and say, hey, we, we fixed a problem. Look how good we are. Um, although that definitely would backfire. But mm-hmm. okay, so three big problems. Uh, ASAP said these problems are symptoms. There is a root cause here that we're still looking into. We can speculate about this root cause, but ASAP talked a lot about Boeing's corporate culture and, and they... Well, they talked a lot about it, and they also didn't talk about it at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so you kind, we kind of were reading between the lines in Discord and m- making some educated guesses, um, and, and definitely making some inferences. Uh, but it sounds like, um, and, and I, I really want to keep this limited to Boeing's space division because you know they've had other issues. And I don't know if they're necessarily connected. I think Boeing and I think even NASA would really like us to think that they are not that they are not connected. But let, let's just talk about Boeing Space Division right now. Each of these issues had three or four points in the workflow where it should have been caught. And it they did not get caught. These are some pretty major issues. And so the the finger was pointed, not pointed at Boeing's corporate culture um, not being friendly to what I believe, I think, I think the problem is that they're they're not building a culture that's friendly to people speaking up. I think they need to get to a place where NASA was after Apollo One, right? Where NASA said, "Okay, the buck stops with each of us. Nobody can keep quiet if they see a problem." And of course, you know, NASA has still had problems with this. I mean, Challenger, um, right? The O-ring issue was was foreseen. I mean, people knew about it. People had spoken up about it and been shut down. And I think that's definitely where Boeing is. I think Boeing is very, very focused on the bottom line. I think with regards to Starliner, they are very, very focused on beating SpaceX. And, you know, when it when it comes down to it, if they have the ability to let two major software gaps that could have been caught, right? This is a lapse in judgment. This is a lapse in good code review. And this is a lapse in prioritizing the mission and the, and the product over being able to deliver on time and being, I was going to say being able to deliver 
on budget, but they have a gigantic budget. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so an organizational safety assessment is being uh, put in place to actually go over Boeing's, you know, organizational safety culture. NASA is also, you know, admitted that they had poor code oversight in this this issue. Um, they they didn't really excuse it, but they said, you know, we uh, we're looking towards going to the moon. When we go to the moon, we're going to have our hands deep in every single pie. We're going to really be um, digging into the work of everybody. But what what did he say? It was it was something like. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't want to be glib, but going to the international, going to the International Space Station, we thought was fairly routine, and we thought that we could be a little more hands off. We thought that this mm-hmm. was this was easy and safe. Uh, and and he really didn't say easy and safe, but that was kind of he's kind of like this. This isn't supposed to be that big of a deal. Right. Um, so so NASA's like, yeah, we we also uh, have some culpability here, and so uh, Boeing will be reviewing all one million lines of code. And then NASA is going to go and re-verify all of their code. So ASAP has a lot of work to do here, but they also said that they are going to be um, presenting NASA um, some uh, some recommendations uh, to make sure that they actually oversee contractor work correctly. Mm-hmm. So as far as next steps are concerned, I think the big question in everybody's mind is OFT going to have to refly. Um, and in this press conference, they were very, very, very careful to not say yes or no. They wanted to give a lot of reasons why the answer could be no and could safely be no. Um, I'm paraphrasing here, but I think the justification was, well, if you have a tire blow and you pull over to the side of the road and install your spare, you check the spare for its air pressure before driving around. You don't just throw on a spare and start driving to test and see whether your spare had air in it, which, okay, great. Absolutely. I agree. But you also don't accelerate up to highway speeds right after putting a spare on you drive slowly, (laughs) you know, like Starliner makes me straight up anxious. If I'm going to be completely honest now, it does. Yeah. I I don't think I'm going to be quite as excited for, you know, that return of, you know, humans launching from yeah. American soil. Um, so, yeah, so we don't we don't know if another OFT is going to be required, but uh, NASA said that once they, f- after this review is completed, once um, IRB, what is it, not not the independent, the, the Institutional Review Board finishes its uh, independent review, um, that they're going to be amending the contract. Um, and that amendment may include another flight, but it sounds like NASA really doesn't want to do another flight, which I think is um, kind of crazy. Has- <laughs> All the hallmarks, that's like, it's all these hallmarks of, you know, making the mistake is one thing, but if the attitude from that mistake is, well, no, maybe we still don't have to actually do our uncrewed flight to really make sure that everything's safe. It seems like they're not learning, I guess, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, I I understand both sides of it, right? Like this flight validated a lot of systems and the invalidations are things that are, you know, relatively easy fixes, but that doesn't mean that there aren't other things that were, that were missing. I don't know. Um, this whole thing, like, like you said, Dennis, this whole thing just makes me nervous. (laughs) Yeah. Not great. So that was a good rant. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Let's translate over to something a little bit more happy, a little bit more positive. uh, And that is that Astra space emerges from stealth mode. Now we've talked about this. I think we had this as a short suite a couple weeks ago that they have emerged from stealth mode. Um, But I guess we have a little bit more information on that now. Yeah. Yeah. Astra space has been kind of in the front of the news for, uh, 
a while now. <laughs> um, yeah, in episode 243, we talked about them in the context of the DARPA challenge, but now, uh, yeah, they're, they're emerging from stealth mode, like you said. So, um, I guess a little bit of background, right? Astrospace, uh, uh, formed in, uh, October 2016. Uh, the two co-founders, uh, Adam London and Chris Kemp, uh, wanted to make this small satellite provider, but following a different uh, philosophy than what, let's say, a SpaceX does, where they focus on reliability and making good, powerful rockets. Uh, Astrospace, which uh, often went by uh, Stealth Company, was uh, right? They always had, uh, you know... Stealth Space. Like, even their... Stealth Space, thank you. Yeah, even in their, like, email uh, addresses, they were, you know, name at stealthspace.biz. And so, in any event... Um, <laughs> was it dot biz? <laughs> it wasn't really dot biz, but <laughs> it should have been. Nah. Yeah. So, their philosophy was to build, uh, you know... Uh, boring rockets, uh, in their kind of, uh, words for, uh, small sats, uh, focusing on cost savings. So, uh, you know, the simplest, most manufacturable rocket possible, you know, which is as far as, you know, my limited understanding of business is a way that you can really be successful. You know, you don't really focus on, uh, well, you, you focus on the cost savings, right? Like, uh, I guess a Ryanair, uh, for example. And so um, London in particular had designed a rocket for DARPA to carry a single 3U CubeSat uh, back in the day. And so he had some experience from that. And so they formed the company and, uh, you know, have had a bit of history. They've been around for four years now. But now uh, what does coming out of the stealth closet mean? Well, first off, that they have kind of stopped this uh, wink, wink, um, <laughs> you know, they would advertise for jobs and things like that under this uh, sort of stealth name, but now they are, you know, Astrospace uh, properly. The uh, website itself is no longer this very minimalist design referencing the stealth uh, space company, but, you know, it's actually gorgeous if you go there because have you actually checked out the website? Yeah, it's it's really nice. It's, it's, it is, yeah. I mean, like, it's got this beautiful image of the Earth uh, rotating underneath it, underneath you, and it's just... Uh, it's just wonderful. Uh, Delta V in the chat says, is this where we praise the logo more? And yet, look, it's such a good logo. So if you haven't seen it yet, it's a star, uh, just a five-pointed star. But the two points that are pointed up and to the side are slightly darker so that it forms a, sort of a triangular, um, what's, the, what's even the name of that shape? But like chevron. Um, a sh right? Yeah, a chevron I think is is pretty good. Um, but it, I mean, it's, it's basically the, uh, the Starfleet logo in the middle and, mm -hmm. um, they've got different versions of their logo, but I think my favorite is the one where the, um, the art, the color of those upper two arms is really close to the, to the foreground color. It's just barely a little bit of a lighter gray and it gives it such a great, subtle, simple look. I think, I think it's really great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, this big reveal came, uh, uh, concurrent with a, uh, you know, them showing up at a uh, small sat symposium and uh, they were in this private meeting room and essentially had a uh, small talk. Uh, they presented a, a short space security talk. I, 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 again, I'm really curious uh, next time we see these uh, filings for their launches, whether or not their email addresses have changed. But uh, everything else has apparently changed as far as we can tell. And they are, you know, proper Astrospace, the logo, the site, you know. Uh, obviously, they've been, I can imagine that the employees are really excited about this reveal, finally going public with it. Um, as for the uh, company itself and what uh, they have, you know, on their docket, 
coming up. In episode 243, we talked about them preparing for the DARPA challenge. And so they had a uh, version 1 and a version 2 of their rockets, uh, Rocket 1 and Rocket 2, as they were called at the time. And uh, Rocket 1 was kind of, both of them weren't complete successes, I'll say. Uh, but more recent reporting said that Rocket 1 actually did a lot better than they thought it did. So chronologically, what happened was it was launched, and correct me if I'm misremembering this, but it was launched into very foggy conditions and nobody really knew what happened. And <laughs> and there was speculation about the second engine failing and whatnot. But the more recent reporting uh, says that it didn't have a real second engine. Uh, mm -hmm. And so it kind of did what it was supposed to do. So good on them. Interestingly, that rocket could only have fired for 60 seconds. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I did see that. <laughs> so it, it did what it was supposed to do. And we, uh, I guess, had different expectations for it. So the Rocket 2, though, definitely uh, failed. Uh, that's the one that rained uh, toxic uh, <laughs> problems all over the uh, launch site. Uh, but now it's Rocket 3, or uh, it's going to have a different naming, uh, as you'll talk about in a bit, Ben. Uh, but that's the one that uh, we talked about preparing for the DARPA challenge, right? Uh, launching uh, at two different sites uh, within a very short time frame and without that much prior knowledge of what you would be uh, launching. And so the new uh, uh, NOTAM and NOMARS filings indicate that they have uh, daily launch opportunities out of Kodiak beginning February 21st through March 1st. And so that's really the time to keep an eye out. And uh, it sounds like they are targeting the beginning of that window. So this will be really, really cool if they pull this off. And... Um, yeah, if, if they do successfully make it to orbit this year, then that would be the uh, quickest time from a company's founding to reaching orbit. This would be four years, and it would beat SpaceX's uh, record of six years. Hmm. Well, so. and, and that, that comes with an asterisk, because Astra is actually um, Ventions. Um, and ah, Venti uh, Ventions was 2005. Yeah. So, so, uh, and, and also that, that doesn't really rushing to orbit doesn't really jive with Astra's, um, stated kind of, uh, philosophy. So I, I guess the question is, what is Astra's, uh, company philosophy? Um, and this is really where we're getting into some new news this week. There is a fantastic interview that Ars Technica did. Um, of course, there's a link in the show notes, but, uh, they really, got to talk in more depth than we've ever gotten uh, from Astra, which is really cool. So their intention is to do hundreds of launches a year as cheap as $1 million per flight. The $1 million obviously relies on the scale of hundreds of launches a year, but we're, we're talking about being able to fly a vehicle every day, which is crazy. Um, <laughs> Space News, in fact, quoted Peter Beck's opinion. Uh, he's, you know, he said he was pretty skeptical about daily launches being possible, mm -hmm. like even in terms of what the market can soak up. Um, he's just like, well, there, there's not that not that many customers for the existing people right now. I don't know where they think they're going to get them, and th that's always really what things kind of come down to with uh, with rapid launch uh, kind of vehicles. Is you know, you you. Right now, we just don't have the customers. But, you know, we, we've seen the space industry grow and grow and grow. So um, I don't think it's irresponsibly crazy to, to kind of yeah. bet on this. 
Yeah, it's not a foregone conclusion. They can right, right. It could pan out. Yeah, exactly. So uh, to to get to this uh, to this goal, they are really focusing on being as cheap as possible, and they're they're making some pretty drastic design decisions. One of the ones that one of the concrete ones that was mentioned was the fact that Rocket One had a carbon composite fairing. And uh, for Rocket 2 and onward, they actually switched to a, you know, a more standard aluminum fairing. Now, that increased the weight by 20%, uh, the, the weight of the fairing by 20%, but it decreased the cost by a factor of 100, um, <laughs> which like, that tells you a lot about what they're valuing, right? They really, really, really want to be able to produce these things cheap and quickly. Part of that also relies on a lot of vertical integration. They are building almost every single part uh, that goes into their rocket. And, and part of that, or one of the things that actually falls outside of that is, is 3D printed parts. They don't have a 3D printer right now. And the only part that they're actually 3D printing are the impellers for the turbo pumps. And the reason for that is that 3D printing is slow and 3D printing is expensive. A lot of people pretend like it's this magic answer to everything, but in reality, it's <laughs> the magic answer to a very limited set of design problems. It is a way to make parts that would otherwise be impossible or nearly impossible. And in, in that frame of reference, yes, it can be cheaper than paying an expert machinist to actually uh, to do this work. But in, in reality, a lot of the time it's, it's just really expensive. So they, they only have one part that gets 3d printed, um, that they have to farm out everything else. They pretty much make themselves. Uh, the other kind of contributing fork to being able to reach this goal of, you know, a launch a day is relying on iterative design, which means that they are going to fail early and they're going to fail often. And that's okay. They're not going to spend a bunch of time designing something and, and only flying it at the end. They want to fly it every chance that they get. It's basically the equivalent of running, you know, nightly builds of, of software, you know, like you can download Firefox's nightly builds. You're going to have bugs, but you're going to have the bleeding edge of, of what's out there. And so this is part of why they remain so, so stealthy for so long is that they didn't want to have to explain to everybody why they were having so many failures. Um, and, and I think this is a really good philosophy. I think it's unfortunate that our current uh, economy and our current, you know, zeitgeist does not support failing early and failing often, because um, I think it's something that individuals need to do, uh, much less, you know, companies need to do. Um, okay, so they built, I believe, this is me guessing, but I believe they built one Rocket version 1 and one Rocket version 2. Um, right now they're working on Rocket version 3, and they are building five of them. But they're only planning to launch three of them. Or they're only planning on three successful launches. They have two spares, assuming that this fail early, fail often is going to continue to happen. Um, and they're expecting to potentially lose two out of these five. Um, the third one, I believe, is the only one that's intended to make orbit. I don't think that, I don't know if the first two are going to be specifically suborbital or if they're just expecting failures to happen um, and for them to not make orbit. Um, but once they do that, they are hoping to begin production on, on Rocket 4 by the end of the year. Um, and Dennis, you said something about a different name for the rocket. And uh, I haven't seen anything but rockets 
you know, 1.0, 2.0, 3.0. What, what, what did you mean by that? I was referencing the engine. I oh, think. the engine. Okay. Yeah, it's been a long week. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. Uh, yeah. So version four by the end of the year. So that's three version threes. They want to make 25 version fours. Um, and then they want to make a hundred version fives. So, uh, four is going to hopefully see the beginning of their commercial operations. And then five is going to start seeing the costs decrease and the performance increase hopefully we'll we'll see what happens what was the cost that they're looking at at least initially for production of a rocket uh yes sam in the chat answers your question david that's 2.5 okay. million is what they're looking at right oh, now. okay wow mm -hmm. that that is impressive very impressive i mean like granted it's a small launch vehicle but still mm -hmm. 2.5 million yeah. yeah. So they they cited their fairing as cost well the uh the original carbon composite uh as costing a quarter million dollars. And they're kind of like, well, that that's like what we want the whole rocket to cost like. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. This is this is like too expensive. So they now the fairing's only 2500? Yeah. 2000 2500 yeah wild. that is that is wild yeah <laughs> that is insane so uh we got to find out a couple of other cool things uh we found out what their engine is called it's called the delphin that's their first stage engine there are five of those guys clustered on the first stage it is a 3,000 pounds of thrust engine at uh, sea level and then 6,000 pounds of thrust by the end of its flight, which I'm assuming is not vacuum, but pretty darn close. And yeah, like I said, uh, the first flight had uh, consumable parts on the engine. It's part of the iteration, like, okay, this isn't going to be our final version of the engine. Let's just validate what we have so far. And so some of those parts, I'm assuming they're probably like the impellers or something, you know, complicated like that. Um, but part of them, you know, it's kind of an engine rich combustion cycle where they knew, Hey, some of these parts are not going to make it for more than 60 seconds. And so that's why the, the first flight was limited to 60 seconds. Um, and then their upper stage engine, we know even less about this, but it's, it's named Aether or Aether, A-E-T-H-E-R. And yeah, that, that's your, uh, your Astra update. Pretty hmm. cool. Yeah. This week, let's just do two short and sweets, shorts and sweets. So what's the first one, Dennis? Well, first up, SpaceX likely to spin off Starlink business. SpaceX's COO and President Gwen Shotwell told reporters at an investors conference that the company plans to take its Starlink business public and pursue an initial public offering. While Elon Musk has said that SpaceX would need to be regularly ferrying people to Mars before going public, Starlink and its potential to provide global high-speed internet has helped private investors justify the parent company's $33 billion valuation. More than 240 Starlink satellites have been launched so far, and regulatory filings suggest the company plans for a constellation of at least 42,000. And then next up, uh, Cape Canaveral is getting a name change. So this is kind of a big one. On Friday, military officials announced that Cape Canaveral Air Force Station will be renamed Cape Canaveral Space Force Station in keeping with the establishment of the United States Space Force. The adjacent Patrick Air Force Base will also be renamed Patrick Space Force Base. These two installations will be the first of several name changes to come as the Air Force Space Command transitions its operations to the Space Force. A specific date for the name change and renaming ceremony will likely be announced in the next 30 days. So no more Cape Canaveral Air Force Station, though it'll now be Cape Canaveral Space Force. So that's uh, kind of strange and kind of weird and kind of sad to me. But I don't know how you guys feel about it. But do well, you feel, is that like weird to you that it's, it'll, it'll have a different name that we have to say from now on? Yeah, it will, it'll definitely take time getting used to if we ever get used to it. 
but when I first read the the, the headline that you, uh, you wrote, I was thinking like the Cape Canaveral part being changed. I was like, yeah, what? no, <laughs> that would be. <laughs> I think they should have just renamed uh, Air Force Base Command Space Force and just gone. Oh, yeah, we did it. There you go. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. And so one last correction on parachutes. Real quick. Real quick. Okay. La- last week I said risers when I meant slider. And I'm so sorry. Uh, skydiving parachutes are reefed by a slider. The risers are just the cables, the bo- the bottom part of the cables, basically. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, everybody who corrected me, I'm very sorry. All right. And we're done with that. All right. Uh, oh, and I need to give, uh, I was asked to give a shout out to all the uh, civil engineers listening. Uh, you guys rock. This week we have a cool interview. We have Jason Bott uh, from the 100-Year Starship Project. Just a 100-Year Starship. The company is a 100-Year Starship, yeah. Okay, from the 100-Year Starship, which I kind of see as a project, um, but I guess you can tell us more about that. So first of all, tell us what your role is within the organization and what that organization exactly is, because I think we've heard about it, but to be honest, you know, like mm-hmm. I don't know too much, but I've definitely seen a few videos on this. Yeah, not a problem. Let me uh, cycle back actually nine years and... Uh, this comes out of a little bit of some conversations that key individuals in NASA and DARPA were having at the time. And there's a whole host of reasons. I've heard different theories, ruminations. Um, you know, part of it was how do we encourage people to continue striving forward with major uh, space endeavors and projects? But basically, the goal was the question what would it take to actually get to another star? And so. The first thing that happened was NASA and DARPA put together a very small private group of people uh, that met uh, just for three days. And actually, part of that program was the principal of our current organization, Dr. Mae Jemison. And uh, then about six months later, NASA and DARPA hosted an event. It was the first 100-year Starship Symposium, and they did that down in Florida. And I like to describe that as almost the Woodstock of Interstellar. Um, (laughs) Thousands of people showed up. I mean, they just flocked. Uh, It was absolutely an incredible, crazy moment. There were topics and discussions on everything possible. But the whole point of that meeting and that symposium was that NASA and DARPA were also putting out an RFP. And that RFP was we would like to award a private organization – with uh, half a million dollars in seed funding. It wasn't continual funding, seed funding, to take the initiative of interstellar uh, exploration to the next stage. And so out of that, tons and tons of organizations came up with how they would create an organization to actually achieve that. Uh, The organization that I'm with was actually, originally the RFP was put together by the Dorothy Jemison Foundation. in working with a couple other teams and departments, they were the ones who actually won it. And uh, it was Dr. May and Alaris Allman who helped write that. The RFP had a little bit of a different slant. And the idea that the conversation was that this is such an audacious, huge goal, the idea to actually get to another star, that it will require the largest engagement of the most diverse set of people ever. This can't just be a single nation program. It can't be uh, just a space 
uh, organization, space agency program. It can't even just be an alignment between space agencies and the large uh, commercial space endeavors. We're going to have to think about all aspects of life. And you know, I'll talk about it a little bit later, but one of the things that we have really tried to do is to embrace all the various different types of disciplines that may be required to do this incredible interstellar journey. And, you know, we've had people who are even uh, fashion and textile manufacturers come and talk because one of the craziest ideas, if you want human uh, actual manned interstellar exploration, laundry is a lot larger of a question and a challenge <laughs> than you would think. It doesn't apply on the space station. It doesn't really apply right now on space shuttles. But if you think the amount of laundry that people go through in their life, I mean, you're talking train car upon train car of it, and that's going to get you to, uh, but, you know, you, you, there's going to be a whole host of other problems. And um, you're starting to talk about chemicals and everything, and how does that affect the environment? And that actually comes into a little bit of my field. Um, I Two of my hats are editorial and creative. So part of my hat is editorial. We put together our proceedings every time. We finish a symposium or anytime we work on any projects. And it's my job to uh, work with the various different authors, edit those, get them out, uh, and publish each and every one of those. We have uh, four of those out there right now. And I think we're looking at somewhere around 2,500 pages of, you know, academic, scholarly, scientific work on the question of interstellar. Uh, and then the other part comes into that, how do we engage the widest array of people and that's in the creative side. I have been responsible for hosting an event called the Science Fiction Stories Night, launching our Canopus Awards, uh, and engaging the science fiction community. A lot of people will tell you that it's Star Trek or these other science fiction you know, shows that got them interested in space. It still holds true. Uh, but part of my job has been really trying to get people to realize that science fiction has a very uh, practical purpose in that... There are things that you can do in science fiction as thought experiments that you could not do in real life. And science fiction enables us to kind of go into some laboratory um, places and to really dig into some of these bigger questions. I even like to apply the idea that a 100-year starship is um, applied science fiction. We're talking about something so radically and far out there that most of the time, even when we're being incredibly sober and stoic and serious, we're still venturing into the realm that is currently bordered by science fiction. And so how does science fiction become useful? The other part of it is learning how to get scientists and space geeks and everybody, how do we tell the story better? Because space is incredibly exciting. It's incredibly cool. But we've gone through major phases of the last few decades where we haven't done a really good job of engaging the general community, the general populace. I think we're in a little bit of a different world. These last 10 years have seen a change of that. I think we've seen a lot more hard sci-fi that really embraces some of these conversations become more popular. Uh, but 10 years ago, we didn't see that as much. And so part of that's also the conversation. Uh, one thing to clarify is when we talk about a 100-year starship, the question that always everybody has is, okay, so you guys are building a starship. And the answer to that is no, we're not. Our mission is to actually make sure that the capabilities for an interstellar journey exist within 100 years. 
So that is what our ultimate goal is, not to build the actual starship. You're never going to have the 100 YSS uh, planetary shipyards out there. You know, that's not happening. What is going to happen is that we see ourselves as constantly being that big tent to make sure that we are continually driving those technological capabilities further. And we're trying to do that with as many disciplines as possible because we see this as kind of not just an elevation of technology, but almost an elevation of the way that we even think about it. Because it can't just be about rocket science and it can't just be about engineering. And I know that's tough when your guys' title is orbital mechanics. I'm not trying Mm -hmm. to nullify that in any way, but realizing that there's going to have to be all these other disciplines that get added to the engineering aspect to drive us forward. Okay, there's my spiel <laughs> in a nutshell. <laughs> All right, thank really, you very much. Uh, yeah. Hour-long interview done in 10 minutes. Great. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I really appreciate that you say that, Jason, because I've, I've definitely heard other people that suggest that rather than the Big Ten approach – uh, historically, it's always yeah. been like, you know, these intrepid few at the vanguard yeah. who kind of set off. And so, yeah, I think that that could lead to problems uh, adopting that. And it has in the past. And so uh, I really like the uh, the cut of your jib. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That's actually how I got into this. Um, it's kind of an odd thing. I've always been a space geek. And I mean, I emphasize the geek part of it. My training is entirely in a different perspective. My uh, degrees are language, liter arts, uh, literature, creative writing. I'm actually right now in a doctoral program for mythological studies, uh, which when you're talking about NASA and DARPA and space, people are like, that doesn't make sense. And I go, I hear that. Um, I actually, going back to the, or the Florida uh, conference, NASA actually put out an initial RFI and they wanted to know how would you go about actually starting an organization or managing an organization that could last a hundred years? And I wrote, I mean, I found out about the RFI. It was like at 9 PM the day it was due at midnight. Hmm. And I just Mm -hmm. had this thought, I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to sit down. And I wrote out a three page idea. And my idea focused on the idea that most often things that last a hundred years are decentralized. And so I looked at various types of uh, revolutionary cadres, these small cadre groups that have lasted during some revolutionary wars. I looked even at various religious organizations, the Catholic Church, but I even looked at things like the underground church movement in China. And then I looked at other types of small group entities. And I said, you know, and I just wrote this three-page paper out of like, If we're going to do this, we need to actually decentralize it. You need hundreds, if not thousands, of small groups working across the world for a 100 years that are constantly getting their information uploaded. You bring them together. You continually drive out the next goals. But the more and more you you centralize and the, the greater the hierarchy, the less innovation we're going to have. And so I just wrote that out. And then I can remember the day I was actually a... My daughter had actually been born. I was sitting in the hospital, and I get a call, and uh, it was a gentleman by the name of Paul, and he was with DARPA, and he goes, hey, we'd like to uh, fly you on down and come and speak at this symposium. I'm like, Hmm. okay. Um, But it was over that. It was a very decentralized approach, and we're still kind of trying to navigate that, um, but I think that is really a lot of 
the heart of what we're trying to do too. I don't know if I'm alone here, but uh, is anyone else reminded of the Foundation series? Because I started to think that like this is something that needs to exist over a wide swath of time. Oh, you know? yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It just kind of put that in my head. That, that is actually funny because we constantly go back to the Foundation series. It is... It is a major part of uh, what we do. We actually have a gentleman that works with us, um, Dr. Ziello, who actually says that what he's trying to do is create psychohistory now. And that his intent is he actually sees uh, 100 YSS being the potential forerunner of a foundation. And brilliant man. If you guys ever get a chance to look him up, his papers are, I can't even get my head around him. He's one of the most intelligent people I've ever met, but... Yeah, foundation is very much it. Huh. Mm-hmm. And also just, uh, I guess you already did clarify this. So uh, the 100-year starship, that is not to say that this is a ship at some point in the future that will try to get to another star system within 100 years, but just rather that the establishment of this organization should actually last that long. Um, but I don't suppose you have any timetables on, you know, how long it would take to get to another star system at this point. Oh, uh, You know, we've looked into that. I mean, it all depends on what you guys are actually doing for propulsion. Um, you know, there's always the wonderful people out there who are, you know, hoping that the Alcubierre drive works out and we get to warp <laughs> speed. Um, I am less uh, anticipating that. Um, you know, we and we are partnering with other organizations. Uh, probably the one that's the most critical to this right now is Breakthrough Starshot. Obviously, an extension out of the Breakthrough Listen program. You know what the Breakthrough Starshot program attempts to do is to really um, get up to, um, I think, what are they talking about? 20% of light speed, um, primarily using uh, laser uh, sails. And Mm -hmm. the goal is to take basically not even a CubeSat. We're talking about a small microcellular phone type computer, uh, which is nice Mm -hmm. because, I mean... Your your iPhone today can do a whole lot more than even what like Voyager and stuff could do 50, 60 years ago um, and launch that towards Proxima Centauri. I think that's actually one of the first major endeavors. I think if we can actually get optics and actual data back. But even then, you know, you're still talking decades to get there and to get back. Um, in truth, a lot of the conversation drifts towards generation ship. And I would even say before that is the conversation automatically drifts towards, okay, will it always be robotic? And there are a lot of people that say, well, it can only be robotic because humans aren't going to be able to make the journey. And then there are those who say it dare not just be robotic because what's the point of exploration if it's not human exploration? If we don't get there ourselves, is it really exploration? So the conversation is if we're going to send humans, a lot of dis- discussion leans towards a generational ship because, you know, while we can dream about the Occubary Drive, we can dream about these incredibly wonderful technologies we're probably never going to get, you know, maybe up to 10% of light speed. And again, I'm, these are, these are hypotheticals. This is if everything goes well over the next hundred years. 10% with people on board would be super impressive. It would be right. So that's an outlier. I mean, I'm like, that's a major goal. Mm -hmm. And I don't even know if we'll do that. And so like, the goal is within 100 years, the capabilities to launch an interstellar manned mission exist. Whether or not it happens, that's a whole other conversation. But to make sure that those technologies are there. Now, that doesn't mean we we will consider ourselves failed if we don't have warp drive or we don't have 10%. It's have we thought through everything and have we been able to do this effort? So to 
guide my own understanding, and, and I think I've got a much better sense of what, you know, 100-year starship is, but could you almost think of it as, as a think tank, essentially, for interstellar travel, like considering different methods, the practicalities, like laundry you mentioned earlier, and then, you know, publishing appropriate literature, showing up at conferences, things like that? Is that right. getting I, people I th- engaged and involved? I think that's actually right now, at least in these early years, and we're only eight years in, um, will be nine years at the end of this year. I think that's a lot of what we're trying to do. Uh, one of the uh, incredible things that we've really tried to do is when we come together for our conferences, and we have another one coming up here at uh, the end of August, and it's going to be called the Nexus event. And we specifically titled that because we want people to see this as a nexus of multiple disciplines. Mm. We're, we're constantly trying to say, okay, how do we create a conference experience, but we get people to think? Um, and so we've done things where it's like the wall, where we have people in a room and we're like, okay, here's big topics. And you've got people like Jill Tarter or Seti who's sitting at a whiteboard and they're given a question and you've got 10 minutes to throw as much onto the board as possible. Um, and then the other thing we're trying to do is deep dives where we get... 10 to 20 people in a room and we allow them to workshop and we're trying to come up with, like you said, you've got textiles, you've got other people that represent, you know, and we also have the mechanical scientists. We've got the people that are engineers and you've got the, uh, you know, biological sciences and you've got all these in a room. And so we're constantly trying to, how do we encourage ways of thinking um, out of the box? One of the other things that we've done is we have a incredible tool where we've taken 30 to 40 people of various disciplines and we've locked them, you know, basically in a private place where you've got, and I shouldn't say locked them up, but you know, you move them to a private place where there's not a lot of distractions. This isn't like saw. That's not what I'm meaning. Um, But you put them where there's no distractions for three to four days to really say, okay, let's get around an incredibly huge topic and let's really think what can we come up with this and what are some goals? So I I think think tank is good, but I think we've avoided using that phrase because often that comes with an intent or a slant. Mm -hmm. And Mm. our job is not trying to come up with the exact way of thinking. It's more the side of we want to encourage new ways of thinking and new collaborations uh, because ultimately this, if we are successful and say 300, 400, 500 years from now, there is a human literally staring at the, you know, the stars around Proxima Centauri, you know, the the Centauri system there, we will be able to say it was because, I mean, it was going to be the largest thing we've ever done and it will require ways of thinking that we can't even grasp right now. Uh, Mm -hmm. Humans are a, we're a terrestrial species. We evolved under gravity and i mean even our ventures into space we're always close enough to earth you know uh humans have been on the moon but you can still see the earth like we don't even understand the psychological challenges once you get out there i mean right now we have voyager out there and interstellar and you know nasa was able even just in this last week to engage all these people back you know i mean engage uh uh, all these people to make sure that we could still keep talking to Voyager and we're still getting it back online. But we've never put a human out there and we don't even know what would happen psychologically to a human that par- that far out. And uh, that's part of the things we've got to think through and provide thought leadership for. And you see why science fiction comes into this because every bit of this is a conversation about, okay, you know, uh, really, should we even be doing this? Can we even do this? Um, I go back to uh, Kim Stanley Robinson 
and his book Aurora. Uh, we had him up as a uh, nominee for our Canopus Awards, and he was actually, we invited him to be a speaker for one of our events, and I remember talking to him on the phone, or I can't remember his phone, or we were going back and forth through email or something, and uh, his response was, you guys realize that my book is all about why what you're trying to do won't work. And I'm like, <laughs> absolutely. That's exactly why we want you. You've got this counter level thinking. We need you to poke holes into all of this stuff because that's only going to make us think harder. And uh, that's we're, we're not all just trying to get people who are like gaga over this together in one room. We want to have the naysayers mm-hmm. and the people that are you know, really logically thinking through why it may not work and why not happen. Uh, privately, I, on my own, I write novels. Um, my last one that just came out, I actually take a little bit of a contrarian approach to it. Um, ultimately, it succeeds in getting to another star of the mission. But the the novel that I have is starts off with a single survivor of the entire ship because they fail to recognize all the sociological uh, stresses that being that far out from space would have. And then how do you recover? And then how do you manage to get there? And uh, the conclusion I have on the end is that, yeah, we will get there, but what lands won't necessarily be us uh, because that travel and that time will take an entirely different course of action. You know, so, you know, I'm constantly trying to poke holes into what we're trying to do. So what were some of the specific holes that Kim Stanley Robinson found? Kim, his big question really comes down to the um, overall uh, biome. And he has big challenges with the fact of, okay, even if we send humans there, yeah, we can do it on a ship. But we will never be able to colonize outside of this solar system. He's convinced that if there is, and I again, I'm really summarizing this up. You probably have got fans who have read him a lot more uh, or people who are listening that are a lot better uh, readers of his that'll be like, well, he said this and this, and I hear that. So I'm just trying to go high level. Um, But that even if we get to another place, any planets which have not already evolved life, because he really truly believes that, you know, the universe leans towards life, will completely be unable to be terraformed. In other words, they're so far out there, they're not going to happen. And then he's convinced that those who have evolved life, because there's such different evolutionary policy, uh, you know, or uh, paths, that those places will be entirely hostile to our biological makeup. The idea that in Star Trek, you can fly across the universe and, oh, hey, look, there's a planet with uh, life down there and you can beam on down without hazmat suits on and walk around and not get infected and die by some crazy little bacteria that they've all got an immunity to, that he's like, that's an entire fiction. Um, And it's actually a very valid question. Can, if we go there and we find life on another planet, can humans actually even survive? You know, would we, and, or the next question be, how many waves of humans would have to die in order for that immunity to be built up? I mean, and that's where I think science fiction, I think, is beneficial because what I've just talked about here is a horrible thing. You can never do it in real life, but you could explore it in science fiction. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm definitely sympathetic to that idea. I mean, think about how difficult <laughs> trying to have humans survive, you know, on Mars compared to sending them generations potentially on a ship some place that we don't know what the surface is like or anything about the atmosphere and asking them to do that with what they brought with them. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, and that's the challenge too with, on the other end, with science fiction is, as wonderful as it is, the popularity of Star Trek and Star Wars at the same time minimizes some of the great challenges and, you know, scientific leaps that we're going to have to make. You know, people just automatically assume, well, man, once we can get warp drive, we're going to be able to zip around the universe in our Millennium Falcon and go wherever we want. And that's just not going to be the case. And you're right. It's the effort just to make the moon habitable, to make Mars habitable is such a massive undertaking that, you know, we could be another thousand years out before we actually truly can make life livable near another star. And again, the question would be, and I think Expanse has done this really well, James S.A. Corey and you know, Abraham and Ty Frank, I think they've done a really good job of even just showing uh, the belters that all you need to do is get humans away from Earth and all of a sudden you begin to have diverging evolutionary paths. And so what begins to happen to humanity is that humanity changes in order to adapt to those new situations. And the other question, and I, I know I keep rambling here, but and I always think this is a great one, is um, once you launch a generational ship, What's to make sure those people want to do that job? You know, once you yeah. once you send them off, they're not bound to our rules, our laws, our mores, and even our guidance. There may not be any reason for them to go along with the way that we have uh, created things. And we've said, hey, this is what your goal is. They're like, ah, you know, that's hmm. cool, but that's not really what we're here for. I appreciate that you guys roped us into it, but... We're going to do something different. Or, you know, realistically roped our grandparents into it. Yeah, rope, yeah, actually, yeah, because you're going to be talking three or four generations. Um, I cannot think of the name of it. Um, I'll have to go back. It's a beautiful science fiction work, and it was so cool. The first symposium we had, uh, we had a guy who had actually written an opera based off of it. And the story was that the generational ship took so long to reach its generation that the idea of Earth began to began to see as a metaphor and that what was happening was that the people on the ship were actually had taken the language of angels and that they had begun to see themselves as the more spiritually advanced people that were fleeing what they called hell, which was Earth, that there was a reason they were leaving it. And so the idea of going back down to a planet by the time they were able to get there, was conceived as sacrilege. They developed an entire mythology and belief system, uh, which to me I think is incredibly intriguing because humans, we come up with belief and myth around anything. And again, that's going into my, uh, my program of study is we don't realize how quickly we can create new systems of belief. I see that it was based on a book called Paradise Lost by Ursula yes. K. Le Guin. Yes, Paradise is Lost. Yes, that's what it is. Yes, by Ursula K. Le Guin. Yeah, and it is, honestly, I would highly encourage people to read that. Um, you know, and there's there are so many really good books out there about generationships. Um, I think hers is really, really good. Um, and I, I would encourage everybody to read, um, you know, Aurora uh, by Kim Stanley Robinson. There's been so many, even just even the recent few years. I'm a big fan of Greg Bear. I think uh, Hole Zero Three is really solid. Stephen Baxter's The Ark is a little bit of a different one, but I think that one's really, really good, and he really digs into some really strong questions. I mean, if I could be uh, incredibly self-promoting, I would say my book, Onlyest, um, is a it. solid one. And <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I would even go back to Arthur C. Clarke's Rendezvous with Rama. 
I think the entire Rama series of this interstellar ship coming and collecting samples. Uh, anyway, I don't want to spoil anybody on it, but such a beautiful, beautiful story. Yeah, I uh, unfortunately, I, I started rereading the uh, the Rama series recently. I didn't realize how strongly problematic that series is yes <laughs> some some fantastic ideas and it, it really sparked my imagination but boy i didn't realize it's just full of misogyny oh um, horrible horrible it's it is and i don't even want to say it's an example of his time you're just like oh yeah yeah right. it's thick right. and it's hard to get through and someone needs to almost retackle and rewrite it from a new perspective but uh yeah, at the same time i'm sure someone out there right now just cringed and they're like you can't do it it's a classic i apologize to that person that's not what i'm suggesting <laughs> no. no uh no that's what i'm suggesting uh you are it, good good yeah it, i mean it, it was so that series in particular um, was one that kind of captivated me as a child. And it just, the, the strangeness and foreignness that you get to explore and fall deeper and deeper into, I think there's a lot of room there to tell some more stories. That kind of reminded me. So to the extent that you have done so, are you kind of conceptualizing something like an, you know, like an O'Neill cylinder, kind of like Rama? Um, is that something that kind of keeps coming back up or do you have some other ideas in mind you know there have been a ton of different ones that have been pitched through the years um the cylinder the disc approach those keep coming back i mean there are great people out there and i mean i can i can point to things like uh icarus interstellar project Daedalus. there's all these people that have done really good work on what would be required um you know again not trying to self-promote but one of the things i purposely did with my book only is was tried to take what I could glean out of the various proceedings, this 2,500 pages of scientific work, and say, okay, which of these actually stands the best chance? Um, I'm a big believer in the idea of conceptualizing redundancy. I'm not a big believer in thinking that we should only just send one ship. And I've heard this conversation talked about a lot, that let's see if we actually do this. We should be sending a fleet of ships because... You send one ship and it's going to get destroyed. If you only send one habitable ring, that's going to you're you're just putting too many of your eggs in one basket. So there's been a lot of talk about that of um, making sure that you have a redundancy of systems, and that even gets into the conversation. That, and that, you do see that in Stanley Robinson's Aurora, where you've got these multiple uh, habitable zones. And they actually are so separate from each other. They develop their own cultures. They become trading patterns. You know, over the hundreds of years, it takes them to get from Earth to where they're going. But that, that's a big conversation that keeps coming up right now is that this whole thing has got to be a lot bigger than just a ship. And it's got to be bigger than just we've got to elevate our mind because you're not talking about sending something that looks like uh, Battlestar Galactica. You're talking about sending something that does look more like Rama. Uh, you're going to have to have a natural environment there. There's been a, Dr. Ziolo constantly goes back to, you're going to need to make sure that for humans to be humans on a journey of this distance, there has to be nature integrated into the ship, which I think is one of the coolest things about the um, movie Passengers, that what hmm. really is seen as the symbol of, okay, this is going to succeed as the, tr uh, spoiler alert, but hey, if they haven't seen Passengers by now, that's their fault. Um <laughs> There's this beautiful tree at the end of the movie that's growing up out of the metal and into this. And all of a sudden, in a sense, okay, there's nature. This is we, We've moved past this very um, sanitized 
environment cruise ship and we're returning to okay this is what it means to be human and there there are big questions about that is have we designed this and can we design this in a way that we will be able to supplant or supplant nature or not supplant but take nature with us uh mm-hmm. on this journey because what are humans if we don't have trees and um one book that's actually been brought up a lot uh is last child in the woods and so this is a great example pulling other disciplines. So this was the winner of the National Audubon Society, and this is a writer who hypothesizes that there's what we have in America and in the rest in the modern world called uh, nature deficit disorder, and analyzes multiple children preschools, some in cities, in some in nature, in some around nature and looks at the outcome of those children, if they still have the same basic educational things, and notes that there are less issues of ADD, anxiety, a lot of these challenges we're seeing in those preschools where they're in nature. And so the argument is that one of the challenges for humans to last long-term to be psychologically healthy is that we've got to be around nature. And so we've, we've pulled this book in and there's been a lot of talk and conversations about how do we incorporate nature into the ship? So to follow up on David's question, cause you know, you're, you're talking about some of these really awesome, interesting ideas coming from the hundred year starship. How do we access the literature itself? I mean, the website's beautiful, but I didn't notice anything. Like, are these uh, uh, the symposia proceedings? Or, I mean, how, how can we find out, like, when you're talking yeah. about these people that have proposed, you know, these different types of modes of travel? I'm, that would be the best thing to do is go after the proceedings. And, I, and I'll be in truth honest, we're a smaller group. And so we are constantly trying to find ways of getting our content out there. Um, but the proceedings are probably the best. You can find them on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Uh, type in a 100-year Starship Symposium Proceedings. And you'll be able to go through that. We've made sure that even in the last couple of years, because the first couple, we just had the papers that people talked on. But then mm-hmm. as time goes on, these were these incredible, beautiful presentations. And so we made sure to uh, even put the PowerPoint presentations in. And so uh, you'll actually be able to get the book. And um, like I said, there's four volumes right now. And that's probably the ones where we're like, go after that, find that, and that's going to be your best um, in fact, I think even if you just type in 100-Year Starship, uh, the other thing that we have out there that's kind of fun, this is more for introducing kids to this. Um, so this is not going to be satisfying most of your audience, but it may satisfy the children. We have a series of books uh, through Scholastic, part of their true book, which actually look at 100-Year Starship, and it looks at interplanetary, and we've got this little guidebook that we put out with them. And so we're trying to come up with various um, things through that. We've got the how do we discover new planets and how do we explore around our solar system. Um, Hmm. But, yeah, you can find our symposium proceedings, you know, 2015, 2014, 2012, uh, and 2013. And then, like I said, we're going to be starting our next uh, Nexus event. We will be doing here uh, within the next two to three months on our website, announcing registration for that. And we'll be doing a call for papers and presentations. Uh, and that's actually how uh, things actually manage to, you know, get into the proceedings as we go through and we find the best ones and we put them in there. Yeah. So um, I'd actually like to get an update from you. Either it feels like your website's a little bit out of date or like you guys really haven't done that much in the last year or two. So you, you had a symposia from... 
what was it, 2011 to 2015? And right. then there's been one Nexus or two Nexuses? Nexus there has actually not been a Nexus. Uh, we had an oh, event that was... So it was, uh, and this is kind of a little bit of a longer story. Um, we ended up hosting an event called 25 Strong. We're celebrating Dr. May's uh, 20th anniversary since her uh, flight oh. on Endeavor. Um, yeah. We had we'd scheduled to have the Nexus that very same year. Uh, however, one of the challenges was the big hurricane that hit Houston. And while I'm here in Northern California, the majority of our offices are in Houston. And... It absolutely hit during the major time, and we ended up actually having to completely cancel that convention. And so we'd already had registrants, papers, wow. everything. And so that actually delayed us because then we had to recoup from that, try and navigate yeah. that. Um, there was a lot of efforts and don't want to get into just, you know, when you're literally coming up to three weeks before a conference – and you have to stop a conference yeah. um, because there's just no way for us to pull it off. We just it was physically an impossibility for the majority of our staff to make it happen when you've got people's homes and stuff, and you're just like. Mm -hmm. um, so that's actually one of the things that's put a little bit of a uh, slowdown. We've we've taken some yeah. other ventures. Um, one of the things that we have done in the last two years is we've pivoted. Um, really to focusing on what we can do for better community engagement. Because we realized that we were doing really good at engaging scientists and a lot of the professionals. And so we did launch an event called Look Up One Sky, which created this app, which encourages people uh, multiple times during the year. And we worked with National Geographic on this. We worked with a lot of organizations to just pause and say, okay, look up at the sky and reflect on it. And part of it is part of the getting that wide array of people. We realize we're doing really good about getting scientists, but this would have to be something that we're going to need everybody on humanity to realize. We're part of one planet. We're one human race. And that it's ultimately the stars are our inheritance. Um, and so we've spent time in trying to basically pivot away from the conference that we couldn't pull off to doing this because we're like, you know what? We need to still engage, and so we're going to utilize this opportunity to hop into this. And so we've spent two days. If you go to look up on Sky, you'll see stuff. We've had multiple events. We've engaged with multiple people. And now we're coming back here in 2020 and going to go back into the Nexus route and continuing pursuing that. So there's the whole story. You're correct. If you go to our website, you're like, uh, it looks a little blank, and we're like, we recognize that. <laughs> um, and so we're trying to recoup and try and pull things together. I can absolutely say we've been more than active, though. Uh, we just have not been active in the way that we were for the first five to six years. So if you haven't announced Nexus, I guess you can't uh, talk too much about uh, about the conference. I can give a little bit about we haven't done a official announcement on the website. Um, we are just in the early stages. We're actually just trying to lock in the venue right now. It will be... Uh, we're looking right now at between two weeks. It's either going to be the last week of August or the first week of September. Um, and the point of the Nexus is that it's supposed to be interdisciplinary. We'll have your standard call for papers, your tracks, uh, your readouts. But again, part of our goal is to try and get thought leadership. And so we're trying to have opportunities where people can workshop and then try to engage with other type of groups of organizations. Um, you know, in the past, we've partnered with SETI, Jill Tarter. We've partnered with 
Um, Yuri's Night, we've partnered with. Um, we've had people all the way from, you know, Virgin Galactic come and speak and be a part of it. I mean, um, and so these are some of the various entities uh, that will likely be involved again this year. And, and how will Nexus differ from your previous symposia? Uh, one of the big things I think that we're trying to do differently with Nexus is, again, even larger and larger opportunities for people to focus on specifically what they're excited about. Um, and then at the same time, to be able to rub up against people that are totally out of the field. If, if you've got people who are just propulsion engineers, I want to make sure that there's going to be opportunities at this nexus for them to spend time with science fiction writers and mm -hmm. for them to spend time with biological scientists. And then for them to put their heads together and say, whoa, you didn't even think about this. Um, in the past, we've been very, well, we've had thought leadership, we still have followed the traditional model of present, have your conversation, and then in our larger plenaries is where we have the diversity of thought. Uh, we've had the walls and the other thing, but our ultimate goal on this one is really to really circle up around the term nexus. And this is what we're trying to be, a nexus of everybody who's interested in this. So we're, ru we're running out of time here, but can I ask you about the Canopus Awards real quick? Could you talk about um, how that got started? Um, how many awards you've handed out and I guess what your favorite couple of winners have been. I know we've talked about a few of them during this conversation. Canopus Awards was just kind of looking at all of this literature and even what I've seen in a lot of uh, other science fiction worlds where there's a lot of great awards going out there. But I had seen this trend in the popularizing of science fiction where we're focusing more on the dystopians, uh, your Hunger Games, your things like that. And that was really being the trend, but there's all these great science fiction, hard science fiction, interstellar works that were kind of going overlooked. And so the idea with Canopus was just not fiction, but nonfiction as well. And then also original writing. How do we celebrate the best in interstellar writing out there? And uh, we've done this twice. Uh, the second year ended up, unfortunately, that in the second night of the awards or the second uh, year of the awards was during the conference that got canceled. And so Ugh. we had everything scheduled. We had it all done. We'd gone through And we had a great set of judges from David Brin to, I mean, just amazing set of judges, Jane Gates wow. to all these other ones. And finally, uh, we ended up having to hold and cancel that. So what we did was we actually did a uh, online announcement, and we had the benefit of having Nichelle Nichols uh, you know, come and read our awards off. And we thought, you know what, this will be, we're still got to get these awards out. And so that's how we did year two. Um, and so we're looking to gear up. We'll actually, rather than running it and announcing the awards at this next Nexus, we'll actually use this Nexus to announce the next year's set of what we're going to talk on themes and nominees and go from there. Um, and one of the things we're thinking about doing with this Nexus this year is having the Canopus Awards focus on um, even art, trying to get beyond just the written word, but exploring interstellar art. And we came up with the title Canopus because and Canopus is one of these very consistent stars. You can find it in any mythology. Uh, you can go back for years. It's often been a star that people have pointed to to help them navigate. And then just out of pure geekdom, it also happens to be the a uh, star that uh, the planet in Dune, uh, Araxis, uh, is around. So the star really? in or the star that. of Dune is actually Canopus itself. 
And huh. so that's a little bit of a geekdom thing there for us. But huh. yeah, our goal was just how do we uplift the whole idea of interstellar writing? Because there are so many good things out there. You know, you can go to our site there. Uh, it's an expansion off 100YSS, but you can go to canopus.100yss.org and you can see the different awards that have been. You can see the video announcing those. Man, there's just been so many really good writings over the years. Um, I'm trying to think what were some of the ones that popped for me that were just absolutely beautiful. I go back to uh, Ken Liu's The Waves uh, for short form fiction uh, from year one. I just thought that was absolutely beautiful. Absolutely. I'm sorry, that was year two. Um, Absolutely beautiful and wonderful. There was one that I thought was absolutely crazy uh, and it wasn't the winner. The judges actually went with another one. But I loved it. It was Oscar Garrido Gonzalez's work, uh, and it was an original fiction of about 5,000 words called His Holiness uh, John the Twenty Fourth about Father Angelo Bameski's diary. And it was taken from the perspective of a Jesuit's diary about his the first Catholic-sponsored uh, interstellar generational ship. Um, but it was done from a very religious, holy text writing. And he was absolutely fabulous writer. Um, I actually found it was absolutely beautiful. Um, and then here in year two, there's so many really good ones that even came out in year two. I mean, the, the three-body problem won in previously published. Like, Yes. That you, that's about about the best recent science fiction that there is, you know. It is, and you know, I think uh, Chechen Liu is an amazing writer, and he was so kind and excited to have won the award, um, you know. And I think it's just such a great thing because he really digs in. And what's interesting is it's not just even the first book; it's the entire series, which I think presents a really good conversation on Interstellar. I mean, it's really, again, you can tell the beauty of it being an entirely different culture because his approach to science fiction goes in places that Western science fiction hasn't ever touched. The entire series is an absolute incredible mind twist, and I really encourage anyone to read the entire uh, series because it just, he's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. All right, so it's time for our second to last question, which is where would you like to be found on the internet? Uh, In the show notes, I already have a 100-year starship. Uh, Is there anything else you'd like to include? I think that's going to be our big one. Um, You can find us. I would also highly encourage people to go to uh, lookuponesky.org. Uh, this has been kind of our, our fun little approach these last two years. I don't, I shouldn't say fun little cause it's, uh, the people that I'm working with on the team are like, man, that's a very serious project and they are, but it's so different than we, what we've done. It's been fun to just dig into this idea of, you know what, getting everybody to look up, um, and recognize that we're just on one planet and we're all together. I was so excited. I was in LA and I ran across someone and I was, Tell them what we did. And she's like, oh, I'm a librarian. We hosted a whole week of Look Up. And we had all these kids out there taking photos and writing stories and doing art. And I was like, that's what it's about. That's exactly what I was hoping would come out of this endeavor. Do you have a personal Twitter you'd like to plug? Uh, I actually am not on Twitter. I really, I'm terrible because I'm just not on social media at no, all. That's actually very healthy. <laughs> it is. Uh, yeah. Uh, for me personally, I write under the name J. Daniel Bot. And, you know, if I got to plug something, I plug my most recent novel through Falstaff called Onlyest. Uh, Onlyest tells the story of a young girl alone on a generational starship with just her tiger and her robot. And then she discovers she actually isn't as alone as she thought she was. Uh, But it's, 
my goal with it, and I approach it from the perspective of look at uh, Lost in Space meets Robinson Crusoe and what happens from there. And so part of the fun part of it is the entire generational ship. I hypothesize what would happen if it was the African countries that managed to get the technological leap on us and they launched their starship. And so you find a lot of African mythology and belief systems that are actually crafted into the star system. So, Jason, if you could bring one object with you into space, assuming you're safe and have life support and all that other good stuff, what would that one object be? And maybe assume that it's for a long-term voyage to another star system. Just <laughs> Put a little twist on it this time. Yeah. Man, you guys are really thinking. These are great questions. One object would have to be a journal because you're going to have to record. I, I think the beauty of exploration is observation and trying to document that experience. So if I've got to go into space and I can't take anything else, I want to take my blank pages because need to record the experience. I need to make sure that other people can see and experience what I'm experiencing, uh, even if I'll never meet them. So, yeah. Great. That is wonderful. Good answer. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate your guys' time and uh, really look forward to this. Thank you, guys. Uh, we had a bunch of winners this week, so I guess your clue was not as uh, cryptic as the past several. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and and one of these clues got retweeted by a bunch of people, and I'm just like, what what is going on? I think it was, I think it might have been like a not a botnet exactly, but I don't think it was people understanding what they were retweeting. I think they were just retweeting a, a space history fact that they saw. Anyway, so hmm. those retweeters, if you're listening, that's not how you get that's not how you get credit. You, that's cheating. Uh all right. So the winners are Chubby Turkosi, yay, Joseph Marlin, new name, yay. Lucas Moore, Christian Lowe, Sam Stadelman, and Cy Kyle, bunch of familiar names. The clue from last week was sitting behind a boilerplate. And this week in spaceflight history is the 16th of February, 1965. It was the launch of Pegasus 1, a.k.a. Pegasus A, a.k.a. Pegasus 1, but spelled with an I instead of a numeral 1. <laughs> so uh, Pegasus uh, 1 was the first of three Pegasus missions, 1, 2, and 3. They all had uh, identical mission profiles and maybe identical mission hardware. I'm not 100% sure about that. So this vehicle had 1,450 kilograms worth of scientific instruments, um, and it was attached to an S-4B upper stage, right? So we're talking about a Saturn launch vehicle. And in particular, this is a Saturn 1. So that's just a Saturn 1 first stage and then S-4B upper stage. So this was actually flying on... Oh, I'm sorry. It's a, it's a Saturn 1B. Let me... <laughs> Let me try to get that in there. So this was uh, Apollo mission AS-103, um, which was the third uh, Apollo boilerplate uh, mission. And so um, if you think about an S-4B from Saturn V, you have the S-4B and then a really long uh, sort of interstage that's, uh, that slopes into the narrower diameter of, uh, of the Apollo command service module. Well, in this case, it was a much shorter interstage, um, so a much sharper angle there. And then directly on top of the Saturn 
uh, of the S4B was uh, Pegasus 1. And then directly on top of Pegasus 1 was the boilerplate. And actually, I've seen mentions of also a service module boilerplate, but I'm not 100% sure that's actually uh, what happened. It, it seems more like the service module was a trunk, right? Like a dragon trunk that was hollow mm. um, that basically served as a, as a fairing for Pegasus. So my initial clue actually was going to be sitting behind a boilerplate where a spider should be. Um, but I realized that it's actually a completely altered fairing. So there wasn't room for a lem. The Pegasus was actually where the, uh, where the command module would be. Spider obviously referring to Apollo 9's lem, uh, gumdrop and spider. I think that was Apollo 9. Anyway, yes. <laughs> we could, we could go down so many rabbit trails. <laughs> um, so, uh, they get to orbit. Um, and of course, uh, S4B. Uh, makes it into low Earth orbit. They detach the boilerplate to go do its thing. And then Pegasus remains attached to the S4B. Pegasus A was in a 500 by 731 kilometer orbit. Uh, B and C, uh, or, you know, two and three, went into slightly different orbits. And then once, uh, once Pegasus is ready to begin its mission, it extends what look like solar panels uh, for a 29 meter wingspan. That's almost 100 feet. That's 95 feet. Hmm. Um, they look like solar panels, but they weren't. And as a matter of fact, Pegasus actually had batteries on board. So what these actually were, were micrometeorite detection panels. Um, they were covered in 116 what are called capacitor micrometeorite impact detectors. I don't know exactly what that means. And um, I believe I read this on Gunter's that they actually, the detectors were of varying thicknesses, maybe to detect um, different frequencies so that they could differentiate between differently sized uh, micrometeorites or maybe the the ones that were thicker uh, only triggered on stronger impacts. I'm not 100% sure. So at the time of the first Pegasus mission, um, this was actually the largest rigid deployable structure in space ever. Um, of course, now we've vastly surpassed it. But remember, at, at that time, uh, the only deployable space structures were, you know, tiny little antennas that could pop out and that kind of thing. So uh, all three Pegasus missions or Pegasi missions uh, were intended to last for a year, collect data and transmit it home uh, once a day, I believe is what they were aiming for. And this was sort of a, a survey of low Earth orbit. Uh, I guess 700 kilometers were getting up into medium Earth orbit, but to, to learn about what our local environment looks like. Um, and in fact, all three of them operated for at least twice their intended lifespan. And I think that's pretty darn cool. So there you go. Pegasus, a very cool series of missions. So we have a clue for next weekend. This one is a good one. I have no idea what this is about, but I love it. So what is that clue? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if this actually winds up being a great clue, but I guess we'll find out. So next week in 1932, the clue is, damn it, Jim, I'm a doctor, not a fill in the blank. Hmm. Well, knowing Bones, McCoy, that could be anything. But uh, I guess in this case, it's something to do with 1932. So if you think you know what that is in reference to besides Star Trek, uh, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week, SF, and good luck. Yeah, I'll give you a clue. It's not Star Trek. <laughs> All right, damn. It's not the birth of Gene Roddenberry. I don't know. All right, just a quick upcoming spaceflight event. Just one event, which is just one launch. So our uh, our launch to keep an eye out for is uh, coming out on uh, February 18th. Uh, and this is an Ariane 5 uh, ECA variant. We'll be taking uh, JCSAT-17 and GeoComsat-2B to uh, geostationary orbit. 
uh, JCSAT 17's a Japanese communication satellite for helping with uh, disaster relief uh, efforts and other kind of high volume events. I'm guessing that's going to work because it has an 18 meter unfurlable antenna which uh, I guess gives it some power there. And uh, the GeoCompSat 2B is the second of a uh, pair of uh, South Korean geostationary satellites that are used for uh, uh, their meter meteorological satellites, so for uh, ocean monitoring and environmental monitoring. And so uh, that will be uh, again on February 18th at 2218 UTC, an instantaneous window launching out of the Ariane Launch Area 3 in Kourou. All right. So that is your upcoming spaceflight event. So that is time to deal with the show then. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen, or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.